The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that's, of course, the 23rd Psalm, the psalm appointed for today, the fourth Sunday of Easter, April the 25th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and my name is John Green, and I'm your host. I thank you for being with me today. We're continuing in this Easter season with uh, readings from the book of Acts, the book of 1 John, and the Gospel according to John. As I said, it's Easter season. Uh, In liturgical traditions, Easter is not just a day. It's every Sunday and every actual every day between the day of Easter, the day of the resurrection, and the Pentecost, which is 50 days later, and it includes 40 days in the ascension of Jesus. Those are all important events, and so we, we see these as a season. We're, we're looking at who Jesus is and, and what he has done for us, and so it's important for us to, to reflect on these things and to spend this season celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel for today is John 10 verses 11 to 18. This is Good Shepherd Sunday. Um, we This is observed every single year. I'll post along with this one of my favorite songs and that is The King of Love My Shepherd Is and it's the version that I'm going to post is from a band called I Am They. They just added a little refrain to it that I really like and I think they did a great job with it. So I'll post a link to that here with this um, podcast. It, during this season, we don't read from the Old Testament. We read Acts instead. Um, we're seeing what it meant to them, how it changed these men, the disciples who are now apostles. So we're, we're just following them as they go about the ministry, as they begin the work of extending the work of Jesus and continuing it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So... We begin with this gospel lesson is where I'm going to begin today. It just feels like the, the right place to begin since we don't have an Old Testament lesson. And it, it, it sets the groundwork for everything that comes with it. it. It starts with what we think is kind of a, not an innocuous claim because it's a wonderful claim, but it, it's offensive in the extreme when he says it. I'm the good shepherd. You know, like I said, that seems like not that big a deal to make that claim, but it's an enormous claim because what he's claiming is to be God. He's claiming that he is the shepherd that's the 23rd Psalm is written for. And remember, the 23rd Psalm is written by David, and David himself was a shepherd. God, in fact, says that he'll replace the shepherds of Israel with David, who is his shepherd. <clears throat> and so when David writes that 23rd Psalm, David's writing from the perspective of a sheep. But he's also writing it from the perspective of a shepherd because he knows what makes a good shepherd because he was one and he was a good shepherd. Remember when David is uh, actually overlooked, when Samuel is sent to Jesse's house, he goes to Bethlehem and, and he is there to anoint one of Jesse's sons. And he's not told in advance which of the sons of Jesse will be anointed the new king to replace Saul. 
And so he goes and he sees all these good-looking young guys, and he is prepared to anoint each and every one in turn based on what he sees. And he gets to the end, and God says, no, you see as man does, and, and he's not allowed to anoint any of them. And he finally has to ask Jesse, the father, do you have any more sons? And he said, well, yeah, there's the younger one. He's out with the sheep. I mean, it's, it's almost like saying he didn't even think that much of David. David, was a, he was a good shepherd. He did that job well. But if you're going to anoint one of my boys king, I don't think it's going to be that guy. He's the one that I've sent out there to take care of the sheep. And so they said, nope, get him in here. And immediately Samuel knows by the Spirit of God that that's who he's going to anoint. And so David writes that psalm from the perspective of both shepherd and sheep. He knows what it would mean if he put himself in the shoes of uh, the sheep to, to become like one of them, what kind of shepherd he would need and want, what would make a really good shepherd. And he, he doesn't romanticize it. I mean, it sounds you know like a romanticized version of things until you get to, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and I will fear no evil, evil for thy... Thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, those things can be for discipline, actually. Uh, the rod and the staff can, but, but they keep the sheep safe. It keeps it from going astray and going somewhere else. And, and you know, the, the reality is I don't want to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If I'm romanticizing something, that's not the way I'm going to go about it. I'm not going to think about those horrible things. And then thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, Thou anointest my head with oil and my cup runneth over. I mean, it, do I really want you to prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies? No, it takes seriously what life is actually like. And so it, it's from birth to death that, that this good shepherd will take care of all my needs. And it's, you know, it's metaphor and otherwise. But, but it's not completely romanticized because it takes seriously the the dangers in life and David as a shepherd would certainly know those kinds of things and to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies would be to 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 do an extraordinary thing that means that in with the wolves and and any other uh, predators around David has made it such that these sheep can can relax and be at peace enough to eat and so David takes seriously the fact that we live in a world that's not surrounded by our friends always, that they're not the only things that are there. And so he, he speaks of walking through the valley of the shadow of death and fearing no evil. And it, it's an interesting walk and a certainly an interesting way of looking at things. And, and here lately, with the stuff that's been going on in our lives with our uh, youngest son having the traumatic brain injury just a little bit over a month ago now, and, and not knowing... For a period of time and getting you know far less than optimistic um, reports from neurosurgeons and residents and trauma doctors and nurses and everything else when you when you go through that and you're walking that road and, and God has told you or at least you think he's told you that this will end up okay then it's a difficult thing then to constantly hear he's not going to make it he's not going to live he he probably would he want to live if he couldn't do this that and the other thing would he want to live as sort of a ward of yours and all this and so when people are asking those questions you know you realize when you're in that situation how bad things are right so i mean one day we 
or in the room and a resident came in um, and she looked and she said, well, he's better than he was yesterday. But it's still really bad. Well, was it really necessary to say that? We're in the neurotrauma intensive care unit and my son's in a coma and he's connected to a respirator or ventilator and two or three other machines that are keeping him alive. I'm not really sure why you would think I needed to be told that it's still really bad. And so there are constantly, there was no intentionality to that. She wasn't trying to cause a problem or whatever. And the nurse who suggested, well, maybe, you know, he wouldn't want to live if he had less than full, whatever, uh, um, who was clearly suggesting that we make a choice about what to do. Um, and so that nobody intended to do anything. They were just bringing what they would think is realism to the scene as though we were in any sort of denial about the way the situation was. Um, we weren't in denial. My way of looking at this always is we're still in the game. As long as he's still alive, we're still in the game, and we'll keep pushing forward with this. We're, we're extremely blessed now that God has brought him through that, or at least most of all of that. He's no longer on the ventilator. He's no longer connected to anything, frankly. He's eating, talking, walking, and we're waiting for the next steps. But during that period of time, we felt like all the time we were walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and, and we could sort of navigate that with the help of the living God, with his presence along with us, it made it much easier to navigate that. And, and then occasionally, as it was, the experience was like Peter's experience of walking on water, right? So after he lived the first day, the, the next thing that, that we began to, to kind of say is, okay, he's alive, so we're still in this, and so we're still going to fight for him. We're going to fight for him on our knees, and we're going to pray the whole time, and we're going to believe. We're going to believe that God's going to do something here. I'm going to believe that he's going to do a miracle that nobody in this hospital expects he's going to do. And so over the last week, what we've heard is nobody, literally, this is what we were told, nobody expected this outcome. We have no earthly idea how this happened. We can't believe that he's making a full recovery. So it's it's just the way it is. But, but during that time, we always had a sense of God's peace and a sense of his um, presence along with us. And then people would say things. Or something would happen, right? And so whenever those things happened or whenever somebody said something, it was like Peter walking on the water and suddenly seeing the wind and he began to sink. And so whenever we did that, whenever we were in a place like that, I would go to Suzanne and I would say, look at me. Tell me what you believe about this situation. Tell me what you believe God said to you. And then she would have to recite what she believed that God said to her. Because that's the reminder that no matter what somebody else said, this is what I believe. God has said. And so the way that I did it for myself was to think back on the man that, um, who is there, whose son seems to have epilepsy or something like that. Um, when they come back from the Mount of Transfiguration, figuration, <laughs> Jesus, James, John, and Peter, the other disciples are there and there's a dispute, right? And so that dispute is, is, is whether, why the disciples can't heal this man's son. And, and so Jesus said, these come, can come only, come out with prayer. And then he casts this spirit out of this boy and heals him. And so the man, however, the, Jesus kind of questions belief at one point, And the man says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And so my way of, of walking through this valley of the shadow of death was to pray that prayer.
prayer. Every time something came against the peace that I was feeling, I had to say, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And so in order to help Suzanne, I had to go to her and say, tell me what you believe. And, and when you can do that, then you can begin to, to walk in that confidence of walking through the valley of the shadow of death for, without fearing evil. Now, God didn't have to heal Will to make that, uh, to, to be God or to be good. I mean, that's the point always for me has been that, that God is good. No matter what happens, God is good. And, and to, to remind yourself of that when you're going through difficult times is an important thing, I think, for Christians to do, to constantly remind ourselves that God is good. Because then you've got to make sense of things in a very different way. If, you're, if your thought and your memory is, is that God is good no matter what happens, somehow or another this is for good, reminds you to think of eternity and reminds you to think of the resurrection. It reminds you to think of what Jesus did on the cross because the, the reminder that God is good is the reminder that the world is not. And that in this life we will have things we can fear. Evil things will happen. Death will happen. However, Jesus conquered death during the resurrection. And so now he rules in heaven and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. And if we are believers in Jesus Christ, then, then we'll participate in that eternal kingdom. Nobody gets out of this life alive. That's just the simple fact. And so the reality then becomes, if you believe, then you'll have eternal life. And so we will see one another again. But there won't be pain in this life. Every death is painful. It's, it's a painful parting for those who love that person. And so it's important for us to have a good shepherd with whom we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death in order that we would fear no evil, for you're with me. And so when Jesus says here that he is the good shepherd, he's claiming to be this shepherd of whom David writes in Psalm 23. And then he says the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep as opposed to the shepherd who is the owner of the sheep. But it's more than just a financial investment. It is, it is a financial investment, certainly, but, he, but it's more than that. He cares for the sheep. They belong to him. He says, again, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. It, the, this knowing is a very intimate sort of a thing. The, at night, when they take them into the sheepfold, there will be multiple flocks in a sheepfold. And they take them into the sheepfold in order that they'd be safe during the night from predators. And so you've got multiple shepherds and multiple flocks. And so in the morning, when they're coming out of the sheepfold, each shepherd in turn goes out and calls his flock. And so he calls them, and they know his voice. And they respond only to their shepherd. They're bonded with one another. And you see the picture of the shepherd with the sheep around his shoulders. And you think, what a beautiful picture that is. Well, let me tell you how that typically would have happened. One sheep would have continually been trying to go astray and go its own way and, and its own path. And it would go away from the rest of the sheep. And the problem for the shepherd isn't just that one shepherd, but the problem is, is that along the way, others will begin to follow that, she that sheep when it leaves the flock. And now that increases the vulnerability of the entire flock. And so what the shepherd had to do was he had to break the legs of that sheep. He broke a leg 
and then fixed that leg and then had to carry that sheep until it was um, healed. And the importance of that was that it bonded to the shepherd during that time. It, it became closely aligned. It became then the least likely one to go astray, not because its leg had been broken, but because the shepherd had lovingly tended to it during that period of time. And so that shepherd then was completely bonded to that sheep, and the sheep bonded to the shepherd. And so that was what he had to do to fix it. But it was for the good of not just that sheep, but it was for the good of the flock as well. And so sometimes when Jesus talks about that the Father has to discipline us, he has to prune us and all those kinds of things in order that we might bear more fruit, that's sort of the image that this is coming from. And he says, and so he says he lays down his life for the sheep. Now that is the ultimate good shepherd, the one who will lay down his life for the sheep, who would put himself between any predator and the sheep. So then he says that I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they'll listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now the dumbest sermon I've ever heard in my life was based on that little piece right there, but it was a complete misreading of it. The person said that, oh, that, that means that there are more ways to the Father than Jesus. So he has other sheep that are of different flocks, but, okay, that are not of this fold. Who is he speaking to? His particular group of people that he's speaking to here are Jews. And he's saying there's others that must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. I don't know how in the world you could say, oh, okay, so all these other religions are part of this. No, Jesus pulls his sheep from those other flocks and makes them one. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, which gives the lie to the other silliness that you hear sometimes in a liberal church. And that is, is that uh, there's a guy named John Spong, who was a bishop in the Episcopal Church. He's now retired, still alive um, after many years now. Um, but Spong would teach that passage uh, about Jesus laying down his life, and he called that child abuse, that God sent his son down here to be murdered. No, Jesus gives the lie to that here. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. It was a willing sacrifice for the sheep. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge... I have received from my Father. So Jesus comes to say that I am the ultimate good shepherd, and he's saying that not just about Psalm 23, but also he's speaking about Ezekiel 34. And in Ezekiel 34, he begin, that passage begins with the false shepherds, and it's God's accusation against the shepherds of Israel. He says, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you don't feed the sheep. You've not strengthened the weak, you've not healed the sick, you've not bound up the injured, you've not bought back, brought back the strayed, you've not sought the lost, but with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth earth with no one to search or seek from them and so he says the judgment is coming against you and i'll demand my sheep at your hand and i'll put a stop to their feeding the sheep no longer shall they feed themselves i'll rescue my sheep from their mouths so that they may not be food for them and then he begins to say thus the lord god i myself will search for my sheep and i will seek them out 
As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among the scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I'll rescue them from all the places to which they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I'll bring them into their own land, and I'll feed them on the mountains of Israel by the watercourses and in all the inhabited parts of the land. I'll feed them with good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they'll lie down in good grazing land, and they'll feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I'll make them lie down, says the Lord God. I'll seek the lost, and I'll bring back the strayed. I'll bind up the injured. I'll strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong, I'll destroy. I'll feed them with justice. So God is here saying that he is the true, the good shepherd of Israel. And so when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, he's saying, I'm I'm him. He's making an enormous claim there. And people knew that. And this is part of the why they were offended, these I am statements of Jesus that I've done a series on in the past, and I'll probably do one again in, in the relatively near future because it's such an important topic in the Gospel of John, those I am sayings. And, um, and, and they're just deeply offensive, and, and they become more so every time. Uh, he says that he raises the bar on the claim that he's making when he says these things. So the the... Acts lesson today is Acts 4, 5 to 12, and it's the, John and Peter have been going to the temple at the beautiful gate. They see a man who's been there for 40 plus years who is um, paralyzed, remember, and they heal him. And so in the name of Jesus, he says, he says, Peter looks at the man and says, gold and silver I have not, but this I have in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And so the man gets up and he stands and he leaps and he praises God that thing and so then the the people want to know what happened here and so they give an account of themselves and they they point to jesus as the healer not to themselves they said you know who we are you know that didn't come from our power so then they're arrested and then the next day the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in jerusalem with annas the high priest and caiaphas and john and alexander all of whom were the high priestly family so you've got all the big shots in judaism here and this is going to be a meeting of the sanhedrin the ruling authority over Jerusalem and the temple. And they sit them in the midst, sit the disciples in the midst of them, and they ask them, by what power or what name did you do this? Oh my, you just asked the wrong question. Because you're not going to get the answer you want. Did you put these people in this position so that they would have to claim Jesus? I'm not sure why they asked this, because they had to know who they were, and they had to have already heard the story. But they had one other thing in their favor. They had the day of the trial and the crucifixion when the disciples fled. And so they had the witness of Peter denying Jesus before the servant girl of the high priests and the soldiers. And so maybe they're thinking if we squeeze these guys a little bit, then then they'll deny this. And so Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if, you're, if we're being examined today concerning a good do- deed done to a crippled man, don't you like that? I love the way he puts that. If, if you're asking us today about a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone and their salvation and no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, that didn't go quite as well as they thought it might have. <laughs> the, the, the big shots, the rulers, the powers that be, got schooled by these uneducated men. 
But those uneducated men had seen Jesus. They had been with him. They had seen the crucifixion. They had seen his body laid in the tomb. And they had seen the resurrection. And they had experienced the power of the Holy Spirit being poured out at Pentecost. They're different people. They no longer have fear from these rulers. Because Jesus has conquered the greatest fear of all, which is the fear of death. These men hold no power over these over these disciples at this point. They know about the resurrection. They know it to be true. They don't have fear at all. And so they wouldn't um, confess Jesus in the, the night of the trial or the day of the crucifixion. But now, different men. We're supposed to be too. We're supposed to be completely different people once we understand the resurrection, once we've been saved by grace, once we have been given the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> our faith in Him should make us different people. Everything about us should be different. We should be bold in our witness because we have no fear. What are you going to do, take everything from me? What are you going to do, kill me? No, we, we're supposed to be bold in our witness. We're supposed to be more than that as well. It's not just boldness that's supposed to characterize Christians. It's also love, which is supposed to characterize Christ, Christians. And that's what John says in this First John passage, which is First John three sixteen to 24. He says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And, you know, you can see that in um, sports teams. You can see it in, um, in soldiers. You see that, that attitude of being willing to lay down your life for your brothers. I'll take that hit for you. I'll do this for you. It's we, the few, the happy band of brothers mentality and, and Christians are supposed to have that one for another most of us are highly unlikely to ever be in a position where we are uh, have to literally lay down our lives for our friends it's it's highly unlikely that anybody listening to this is going to be asked to lay down their lives for the brothers um, and so John goes on with that and, and continues that idea and says it's it's more than just about being willing to take a bullet he says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Laying down your life for your brother can mean something as simple as, if you have something that your brother lacks and needs, then you can supply it. It's the idea that, that your leisure can be claimed by your brother who has need of you. You know, I would prefer not to do X and such, but if my brother needs me, my sister needs me, then I'll be there, right? I mean, that that's the way that it works, is, is that, that if I'm not really, if I'm watching the Masters, which was just last, what, two weeks ago, if I'm watching the Masters, which is one of my favorite things to do, or if I'm watching college football, which is another one of my favorite things to do, or if I had a hike planned or whatever, if I did that, and then yet I got a call from a friend who said, John, I'm really struggling with something right now, and I really need to some of your time, then, then am I willing to say, come on? Am I willing to lay aside my own preferences for the sake of someone else? Now, you know, you have to be... Um, when you're the person who's in need, you have to measure, really, am I in need? It's the reason that um, when I was doing pastoral care at a church of about 1,200 people, I didn't give out to everyone my personal cell phone number and say, call me whenever you have a need, because, you know what, some people are just needy, and, and their needs 
are things frequently that they should take care of on the on their own and that's kind of what jesus is getting at when everybody is supposed to carry their own load but we're supposed to bear one another's burdens there's a certain amount that we're supposed to be able to carry on our own and then there's more than that so if you go from a load to a burden a burden is more than a load and so we're to bear one another's burdens so sometimes we've got to be judicious about how we how we do that and how we determine whether or not we need to be available for that sometimes we can ask too much and we need to stand on our own two feet in certain kinds of ways we needed people to pray with us during this season of time because there was just we weren't strong enough to do that and so it's like when um, they're they're fighting the first battle in Exodus, the first time that, that Israel is militarily challenged. Remember that Moses is praying and his arms are in the air, but then as long as his arms are in the air, they do well. And then when his arms begin, he gets weak after holding them up for so long, then they begin to come down and then Israel would start to lose the battle. So he gets two people who come and hold his arms up to support him during that time. And that's kind of the situation here. How do we love one another? And we love one another by being there when we truly need one another and providing whatever's necessary for one another. If we have more than enough, then, then it's our responsibility when we see another in need to provide for them and to assist them in that way. He says, by this, we know we're of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Because remember, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's different from conviction of sin. Condemnation is to say you're, you're no good, period, end of sentence. And conviction is you did something wrong here. What you did was not good. <clears throat> Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So loving God is partially keeping his commandments and doing what he has said pleases him because the commandments are there because they're a statement of what we can do to please God. So in keeping the commandments, then what we're trying to do is is to ensure that our Father is pleased with us because we want him to be, because he's a good and loving Father who has done everything for us, including sending his Son to die for us on the cross. And he says, this is his commandment. We believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he has commanded us. So we're all called to be good shepherds as under-shepherds of the great good shepherd. We're called to shepherd one another by loving one another in the same way that a good shepherd loves his flock. So then we are part of the flock, so we are both sheep and shepherd because we're to be there for one another and providing for one another in the same way that shepherd does. And he goes on to say, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So we're all called to be shepherds of one another. That's part of being the flock of God is is that we've all been given gifts with which we can shepherd one another and we do so in love under the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit, who is also the great Good Shepherd. And so we're called to this wonderful ministry as we are being ministered to at the same time. We've been given a great responsibility, but with that responsibility can also come great joy as we participate in life together, not separate and apart.